It's my pleasure and honor to have back on EM Cases the one and only Dave Carr, the infamous Dave Carr that you'll remember from Carr's Cases. We've done a whole slew of best case evers, uh, everything from anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis to endocarditis, and uh, of course, the live podcast from the EM Cases courses. We did dissection and anaphylaxis. Dave, it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been way too long. So I understand that you have a best case ever that not only brings up some really interesting medical learning points, but also some process learning points as well about how we conduct things in the emergency department. Yeah, so I'm working a busy shift. It's an evening shift. Lots of charts in the rack. And the nurse, she's coming up to me. Dave, can you come see this person? She's having difficulty urinating. And uh, I'm just like, look, it's really busy. I got really sick patients. How old is she? Well, she's 24 and she can't pee. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, that's kind of strange. What, why don't you give her some water and encourage her to pee? And, you know, she's also complaining of lots of pain. Why don't we just give her some Advil and uh, or ibuprofen and I'll get to her. Just let me do my thing. So, you know, I, I do my thing. I'm seeing other patients and the nurse, same nurse says, Dave, look, she's really uncomfortable. I said, well, have you done a post-void residual or a, can you check a bladder scan? Yeah, I already did that. She has like 700 cc's. Okay, well, that's pretty impressive. You know, is she menstruating? Do we know anything? Yeah, she she's complaining of like pelvic pain. And I said, look, if she can't pee and she has 700 cc's, I mean, my mind's just all over the place because urinary retention in a female is not like urinary retention in a male. I mean, urinary retention in a male is, you know, Foley, Flomax, and go, right? It's that simple. With a female, you actually have to use your brain. So I had this woman with urinary retention as a female, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. My thoughts are, given that she didn't have back pain, she probably doesn't have cauda, maybe she has MS, which we see in in this age group with a weird neurological complaint, or with her complaints of like a pelvic pain, I thought, you know, maybe she has an STD or a Bartholin's abscess or something that was causing an obstructive cause. But what was clearly needed was we needed to bring this young woman to a, a private room where I could do a, a sensitive exam. And what was important in this case was it was very culturally sensitive because this woman explained to me that it was imperative if we were going to have a gynecological exam that her hymen was left intact and that uh, she had never had a gynecological exam and she wanted to make sure you know, that nothing was done to make any abnormalities. So I brought her into a room. Of course, I had a chaperone, which you know, we always do. And I had a, a female nurse with me and you know, she was appropriately draped. We did the exam, and immediately when I did the exam, I realized I was over my head. I really didn't recognize my anatomy. When I looked at what I thought was her perineal area and her where her introitus would be, all I could, could see at about 6 o'clock was a very small clot of blood, maybe the size of a Q-tip, like that small opening. It seemed to be bulging. And I really didn't know what to do. So, and of course, it was a culturally sensitive exam. I was kind of not sure where I was anatomically. I applied some gentle pressure to that area with the blood, and I could see things opening up a little bit. And I was like, oh my God, uh, timeout. And I think it's really important when you're over your head 
and in a, a challenging situation that sometimes you need to take a step back. I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years and you can imagine I've done a fair amount of pelvic exams. I really didn't know where I was. Yeah, I can totally relate to that feeling. I mean, we've been practicing about the same amount of time. And when you've been practicing that long, 99% of patients you see, you kind of get a sense of what's going on. You know what you're doing. You're stabilizing the patient. You have an idea of the differential diagnosis and you're thinking ahead of what the next steps you're going to do. But occasionally you get thrown these wrenches. I just had one a few weeks ago where I had this guy who was bradying down to asystole and then starting up again spontaneously. I had no idea what was going on. And uh, I wasn't really prepared for it. I was kind of getting way more anxious than I normally would. I think it's important for us to be able to prepare mentally for those kinds of situations. So in this case, Dave, what, what did you do? You had no clue what you were looking at. You had no idea what was going on. It was a very sort of culturally sensitive situation, uh, which adds a bit of stress to it. What, what was your move at this point? Yeah, my move at this point was to just back out, tell the patient that I wanted to give a few minutes. She seemed uncomfortable and I would come back. And I thought I would call one of the gynecologists to get some advice, figuring I would phone a friend. When I explained the situation to the gynecologist, I, it certainly didn't make me feel any more capable as an eMERGE doc. Uh, it was really hard to explain. I, I told her I had this 24-year-old female who uh, menstruates monthly but has presented with urinary retention, and I really didn't know what was going on. And I said to her, I think she had hematocolpos. Hematocolpos is something that I've been looking for in a long time, and I don't do adolescent or pediatric gynecology in my patient population, so I had never seen someone present with retained blood, but that was what was on my thought. And the OB was like, what are you talking about? Do you even know where you are anatomically? Did you do a rectal exam? Does she have an abscess? Did you do an ultrasound? And I kind of was like, okay, I'm answering no to way too many of her questions. Maybe an ultrasound's a good idea. Maybe I need to have another look to think where I was, but I really didn't even know where I was anatomically. And I think I probably ejected from the room quickly because I was tense and nervous. So what I did at this point is I got one of my colleagues who is an expert in ultrasound. And I explained to her the situation. And having a colleague come in to let us see a second set of eyes was extremely helpful. She was equally perplexed with what things were going on. So she put the probe in the perineal area. And she said, wow, this is an abnormally distended vagina confirming that we were in fact in the vaginal opening and whatnot and said, look, there is a ton of fluid. She did a super pubic exam and said, the bladder is enormous and you have a very full vaginal vault. And what we did together was we took a throat swab. We took one of the applicators and we gently opened that area that had that clot of blood and it was like an explosion, Anton. I'm talking 500 cc's of urine and blood just flew through the room and decompressed this tremendously swollen hymen. And what had happened, because this caused immediate relief, this young woman was like so relieved, was that she had a micro perforated hymen. So she had a very small hymenal opening, 
probably the size of, you know, half a fingernail or whatnot. And every month she would have probably filiform menstruation. So small amounts of blood, she would have to push through that tiny hole. And there was a blood clot that got stuck in her opening and it caused a huge amount of backflow and swelling so that the hymenal opening swelled so far anteriorly that it covered the urethromiatus and it presented in urinary retention which was an unbelievable wild complication and really speaks to the fact that this 24-year-old female had never ever been to a doctor about these issues. You know, she had never seen a gynecologist and no one had ever examined her, but she had been assuming that this was just what menses were like. All right, so let's unpack this whole story a little bit. First, as you were mentioning, urinary tension in males is kind of very straightforward, But in females, I must admit that I don't really have a good differential in my head when it comes to urinary retention in females. There's the limb-threatening cauda equina is probably the the main one I think of. I suppose just pain alone can cause them to go into urinary retention. But how do you approach urinary retention in females? What's your differential and how do you go about sorting it out? Yeah, it's certainly a lot more cerebral exercise as urinary retention in men, as we talked about. Foley, Flomax, go home. Um, in women, you th- I think about it as obstructive cause. And typically what's different here is there's a lot of pelvic organ obstruction. In my career where I've seen obstruction in women that have presented have been huge fibroids. So definitely you could see with pelvic organ prolapse. So someone who comes in with a cystocele or rectocele or someone who has a huge fibroid. You also could see obstruction from a urethral problem, be it a urethral stricture. So anything in the urogenital tract kind of would not be gender specific. Of course, there's neurological causes. And I I do think about MS. I've seen two cases of MS in my career present as acute urinary retention in a female. Um, So I think MS and I think any demyelinating problem. And of course, with neurological problems, anything that would cause you know, spinal cord injury, be it trauma, or anything that would cause spinal cord compression, be it from an epidural abscess or hematoma. And I also think you have to think about infectious inflammatory causes that would be local, such as any STD. So if you had a vulvovaginitis, you know, if you had Bichette's, let's say, if you had anything that caused local swelling and pain, I know I've seen it with ischial rectal abscesses. That's another case where I've seen a bad ischial rectal abscess present as urinary retention. And a lot of it's just holding out secondary to pain. And then lastly, there are things like medications. And of course, there's bladder problems like detrus or muscle issues. But I think the big things to think about in women is gynecological organs that are compressing things. And obviously, rare cases like micro perforated hymen being extremely unlikely. But remember, this is 13 times less common than in men, urinary retention. This is not something you see often, but when you see it, there's pathology. There's something to find. It's not just BPH. I can promise you that. All right. So generally there's two categories there. There's the anatomical, local, genitourinary mass or inflammation, or infection, or something that's actually blocking the exit of urine. And then there's neurologic. I think that's kind of the best way to think about it is in those two broad categories. And neurologic can either be spinal cord or it can be something central. That's a way to think about the differential of urinary retention in women. Um, What else did you kind of take away from this case? So one of the key things that I learned from this case is really about chaperones. And 
especially in this situation. I'll tell you a little bit what my practice has been. What I've always done is said for any young female that I do an anal genital exam, I universally have a female chaperone. For majority of my male patients, I don't bring in a male chaperone unless there's something about the exam that makes me feel uncomfortable, which I'd want a second person. Now, I kind of went out there and tried to ask other people out there about their opinions. And what I've kind of found, and obviously these are generalizations, that most of my female colleagues, they don't use chaperones for their male or female patients as a generalization. And some of my senior colleagues who are in their late 60s or mid-60s or 70s, they often don't use chaperones for anyone. And for me, the other thing would be I probably don't use chaperones for senior patients as well. Like if I'm doing a rectal exam on an 85-year-old, I'm not bringing in a nurse often, but I'm certainly doing it on a 35-year-old young female. So I think this issue of chaperones is interesting. And I think we're at a time and a crossroads in society about making patients feel comfortable of all genders. And uh, one of these patients that I saw a few months ago took me through a real provoking exercise. I informed her that I wanted a chaperone to do a sensitive exam. And, you know, she was an educated professional. And she said, I'm totally comfortable. You don't need one, whatever you want. And I said, I appreciate that. But my practice to have a chaperone, she was totally fine with that. But she challenged me. She said, Dr. Carr, can I ask you a question? Do you get chaperones for male patients? And I knew where she was going with this. And I said, no, I really, I don't. And she said, so you base your decision to have chaperones on heterosexuality. And I think it raised a really good point. And I would challenge you, and I'd be really curious to hear from your listeners, because I know you, your listeners represent this continent and others of emergency medicine, is what are people doing? And what is the right thing that we should be doing in terms of chaperones? And is there a right thing? Yeah, it's a great question, because I imagine that there's a huge variety of practice out there. It's one of those things where you wonder whether there should be some kind of standard across the board. Um, I think it would help both on the physician side and on the patient side. Uh, it would just kind of make things a lot more straightforward. We have a long way to go in emergency medicine to learn as, as healthcare providers all the issues that need to be addressed and that we need to be aware of uh, when it comes to gender which we covered partially in one of our uh, Waiting to be Seen blogs around strategies that come up with LGBT patients. Where do you think we should be going with this sort of as a community? Well, look, I think it probably is practiced very differently in different parts of the world. We live in a very open, tolerant society that we've always had chaperones. And as young medical students, we've always been told to have chaperones. I think there clearly is a culture now that men usually get chaperones and women don't. I think it would probably be the best solution to probably have more chaperones to make patients comfortable or to at least offer it. Because sometimes having an additional person isn't always what the patient wants. Sometimes if I saw a young male, he might not want another male to be there during a general exam. And then do the other issue is sometimes from a systems issue is sometimes you might be practicing where you don't have a male nurse present and you only have females. So if you're going to get a chaperone for a male patient 
does that male patient want a female chaperone if you can't have a male? So there are lots of permutations and combinations. I think that we need to kind of from a shared decision-making offer things to patients. I think that for me as a young male, I like to think of myself young, I'm still always going to have female chaperones and as a sort of a nurse present for all young females that I examine. I have not moved over to men, but I have a, a smaller leash in terms of if I feel at all uncomfortable with any gender or any age, I'm certainly getting a chaperone. If for the listeners out there, if you have any uh, strong opinions on this, we'd love to hear in the comments section on the post that goes along with this uh, podcast on the EM Cases website. So, Dr. Carr, we've talked about the differential diagnosis uh, of urinary tension in women. We've talked about issues around uh, chaperones. Anything else uh, you learned from this case that you think our listeners can take away? Yeah, you never know what walks in the door. You can never be prepared in emergency medicine for what you're going to find. To find a microperforate hymen in a 24-year-old who has had seemingly normal menses every month was a wild way to start my shift. I think it's what keeps our specialty so exciting is anything can come in anytime. Be prepared. Take a time out. It's okay to be humble. I've been doing this long enough to know when I don't know what I'm doing. And fortunately, I had great colleagues and got great advice in terms of, and really a brave colleague to really help this young patient. And don't be afraid to ask. No matter where you are at in your career, ask a friend for help. This is patient care and patient safety we're talking about. Be humble. At the same time of publication of this podcast, check the EM Cases website for our second installment of POCUS Cases with the great Rob Samard. This one will be on pneumothorax. Also on the site, as of this podcast, there are about 30 quizzes at the bottom of each post from episode 89 through 109, and I think a few before that as well. So after you listen to the podcast and read through the written summary, you can take the quiz, which will be the best way to solidify your knowledge. We're hoping that by the fall of 2018, we'll have an EM Cases quiz data bank on 50 or 60 main episodes where you can choose by medical field or by episode, and that by 2020, we'll have the entire EM Cases main episode vault covered so that you can quiz yourself on anything and everything EM cases. A great way to prep for exams or to keep your lifelong learning rocking along. And we've got eight spots left for podcast camp in October in Toronto, a two-day intensive boutique hands-on course on everything you need to know to start a new podcast or take your existing podcast to the next level. Check out podcastcamp.org for more details.